all been able to find Psalm number 45 in God's Word, and we're going to begin our, uh, our time of reading that together and proclaiming uh, the truth found therein uh, to, to recognize the fact that I am dependent upon the, the Lord and you to hear His Word and apply it well to your hearts uh, are dependent upon the Holy Spirit's work in you. So let's pray to our Father, and uh, then we'll dive in. Father God, we thank you so much for this time. We thank you, Lord, for this psalm, for the, the opportunity to, to break in to an ancient wedding, to, uh, to hear of the overwhelming joy and excitement that awaits for those who are in Christ Jesus, to, to bask in the glow of one who is like no other. And Lord God, would you take this time and would you let it be used well unto you for your glory? Lord, would you speak well through me? Father, if anything I say is even slightly off, might it be forgotten and stricken ever from mind? And Lord, we pray that all that is truth and, uh, and right and proper would be bound to our hearts, bound to our souls, that we might love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. That's in Psalm 45, uh, we're going to begin, but to, to start, I, I wanted to, to let you guys know a little bit about what my heart has been going through as I've been preparing for this time together. There's this uh, woman that I know very well. I've gotten to know her over many years, and uh, every time I hear something of her, something odd stirs in my heart. Uh, this woman was involved in a life darker than many in this room could ever comprehend, and she had spent really the majority of her life, it seems, um, to, to pursue, uh, in essence, uh, money, uh, wealth, and uh, the pleasures of this life. She made a good deal of money, in fact, pursuing what we would call sinful endeavors, she had manipulated and used other people, in particular men, to express her own glory and live for her own worship. And it, she had done it for so long that, in fact, everyone who knew of her knew what she did and who she was. Everyone knew what she did with the husbands of the town that she lived in. And she was quite possibly the living embodiment of the harlot in Proverbs who lures young men to their death. This woman was a walking travesty. She was a mess and a dirty, rotten mess at that. And yet, every time I hear of her, I am struck with jealousy. Now, you may kind of ask, why would a pastor be struck with jealousy in regard to a woman such as this? Well, because I've heard her story. Because one day, she was living for herself, making use of her body to send souls to rebellion against God, when something suddenly changed. Now, I don't know exactly what took place to bring this about. I don't know exactly the details of what took place. Maybe she stood in a crowded street when there was a certain teacher or preacher making his way through her town. I, I truly don't know. But what I do know is this. That at one point, a preacher came to her town. And at one point, this woman heard his message. And when she heard his message, she did a few things. She went home and she gathered together the thing that she loved most. 
the thing that she had lived for and was willing to pursue by any means necessary. She went home and gathered together her treasure. She found out where this preacher was going to be grabbing a bite to eat, and she walked right in quite uninvitedly. She found this man in the home of a a man named Simon. The preacher was eating with him. And what takes place when she found this preacher breaks my heart with jealousy. Because in Luke 7, verse 37 through 38, we read of her testimony. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner... When she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. So some of you may know this woman as well. You may have heard her testimony as me, and you, in fact, also might be filled with jealousy regarding this woman of the night. But let's be clear what I am jealous of. It's not her sin nor her wealth. Rather, I envy this, her marveling, desperate love of Jesus Christ. Through my life, I have prayed countless times. Lord, would you let me know you the way this person did, that I might love you the way they do. This grace-washed sinner, this woman, was more holy and glory-filled and righteous than even the Pharisee Simon, in whose house the Lord had providentially arranged this lesson to teach his cold, dark, and wicked heart. And I wonder if you ever wished you loved the Lord more. Like me, if you've ever wondered whether, in fact, you even actually do love the Lord. Well, a wise person once told me this psalm that we're about to read. This psalm is a gift from God to a cold-hearted people to warm our hearts with a burning love of Christ. Psalm 45 is a vivid, awe-striking account of the glory of Christ, of His unmatched grace poured out on an unworthy bride. And I pray that the Lord would do what He intends with this majestic wedding song. To stir in our souls an insatiable hunger for the one worthy King and for the hope-filled presence that one day those who are in Christ will enter in. We read in the prescript of this psalm that it is in fact a love song. Now, most of us are are well aware of some of the nuances of love songs. In fact, many in this room, no doubt, have uh, taken advantage of this pleasant gift from the Lord to woo their so-called loves. I remember when Katie and I had first uh, gotten to know each other, and we would sit in the common area at college, and where I was supposed to be studying, I would instead sit and play music and sing to her, and I knew exactly what I was doing. 
Love songs are a beautiful gift, and really they're a product of love. We sing songs about that which we love, and this psalmist is no different. Now, there's some interesting details in this psalm. It's, it's got a unique flavor of poeticism. Oftentimes, love songs are just kind of lists of, of what I enjoy or, or the characteristics about this person that happen to be beneficial to me. Yet, this psalm reads far more like a, a spectator. It's someone in, involved in what's taking place. And it, it's in living color. The, the images and the descriptions used touch on every variety of, of the human senses. It's a sensational psalm. You feel as though you're not just hearing about someone, rather you're hearing about an event in such a way, in such description, that you're actually watching it take place. And the psalmist describes this awe-inspiring scene of a king and his bride who stand on the side, or pardon, we who stand on this side of the cross are able to know that though all psalms are indeed messianic, this one has a very unique and explicit messianic sound. It points to the Messiah. Thus we can know that this psalm is in fact not written just about any king nor just any bride. He writes of the wedding day of Christ to his church. Now I'll read aloud from our passage today. If you could please follow along in your Bibles as we seek to stir our hearts for the beautiful groom. Psalm 45, to the choir master, according to the lilies, a mascal of the sons of Korah, a love song. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips, therefore God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of a fure. Hear, O daughter, and consider and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house. And the king will desire your beauty, since he is your lord Bow to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of the people. All glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes she is led to the king with her virgin companions following behind her. 
With joy and gladness they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. In place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. Would the Lord bless the reading and hearing of his word. The psalmist, he begins in verse 1, and he sets the stage kind of for this song. He gives us kind of his, his motivation. Why is he singing and what is his main focus or topic going to be? And he says, my heart overflows with a pleasing theme. So he tells us this song, it comes from a specific place. It's no laborious task. Rather, he uses the word for boiling over or bubbling up. The Holy Spirit then has has stirred in him, in his soul, with a deep and passionate message. And it is spilling out. He seems to say, from the overflow of my heart, my mouth must speak. And this will be a pleasing thing. Oh, it's good news. It's a beautiful topic. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. He is sitting ready and biting at the bit to share all that he has to say. He's not slow nor sluggish nor timid in this passion to pour out this good news that he's been given. And then suddenly, verse 2, the song is upon us. He bursts out, you are the most handsome of the sons of men. And it's not weird for him to say that. It's an appropriate response from what he's seeing. The king that the psalmist sees is a king of tremendous beauty. He is one that outruns and overwhelms all competition. There is truly no other man ever born of the sons of Adam that compares to the beauty of this king. Now, Interestingly enough, Scripture is is clear that Christ Jesus, whom we would say this psalm is distinctly about, was not a physically handsome man. In fact, Scripture takes almost no pains at all to describe his physical appearance, save to say that he had no form and no majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. But nonetheless... It is the inner man to which God pays dear attention. And it is the hidden person of the heart where the Lord finds beauty. And of Jesus' inner beauty, much is said of him. According to Mark 9, 15, he was a man who would speak, and he would speak leaving those in his audience looking at him in wonder. He was one who knew no sin, in whom no deceit was found. He was one of radiant goodness and mercy. There is truly no man ever so handsome and as beautiful as this king. In fact, grace was poured upon his lips. Therefore, God has blessed him forever. There's no one whose word compares to this king. When he speaks, it's unlike any other. You see, he was no leader like Moses who required a mouthpiece. Rather, he was the mouthpiece. 
the mouthpiece of grace poured out. He's described thoroughly in the New Testament that when Christ bursts onto the scene, it is in John 1.14 that it is full of grace and truth that he has described. He is the one whom his enemies would leave his day-long sermons and they would say, no one has ever spoken like this man. In Luke 4.22, we read that people marveled at the gracious words that would be flowing from his mouth. His word instructed the ignorant, resolved the doubtful, comforted the mourners, reclaimed the wicked, silenced his adversaries, healed diseases, controlled the elements, and raised the dead. It is a blessed bride who gets to call this man her groom. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. The psalmist continues to describe the scene. This time proclaiming to the king, Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. Of Christ, we read indeed that he does come bearing a sword. We read in Matthew 10, 34-36. He says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. In Hebrews, we read that his word is like a double-edged sword. And of course, in Revelation 19, 15, that his sword will strike down the nations. And this is clearly a proclamation of his splendor. And majesty, who is like this king? Who is worthy of such poetic descriptions? He is glorious beyond compare. And what bride could be worthy of this groom? Verse 4. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. And the peoples fall before you. This king is a conquering one. The psalmist depicts him as as one riding out like a king into battle. Only the banner he waves is not one of some ruthless invader. But that of a liberator. One who rides out to free. In His majesty, He rides to be the conqueror to bring about meekness. A conqueror to bring about righteousness. A conqueror who comes in truth. His victory is widespread and unstoppable as His arrows go out launching from afar to defeat His enemies. Who could this be sung of if not our God? It is Christ in Revelation 19. Verses 11 through 12, who is called faithful, true, and righteous one, who rides out in victory over the nations. It is Christ, who in John 12, 45 through 50, we read, speaks only ever the truth. And just a few chapters later, we see why. In John 14, 6, it's because He is the truth. Christ calls all to come to Him, for He is gentle and humble in heart. He offers the inheritance of the earth to the meek in Matthew 5.5. He says that it is those who hunger for righteousness that will be satisfied in Matthew 5.6. 
This conquering king is an image of majesty. He ought to lift himself up as superior and look down upon all the lowly beings before him. Christ has ever more right than King David to stand atop his highest towers and look down from his kingdom and select that which he would like to use for his own well wishes. And yet, when Jesus was standing on the heights of the mountains overlooking all of the glory of all of the nations, he submitted his will to the Father, not daring to bow his will to the arrogant temptations of Satan. Is it not at the pinnacle of Christ's humility that we see the heights of His glory? We read of the overwhelming meekness of Christ as Paul describes Him in Philippians 2, verses 6 through 11, referring to Christ, who, though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself to becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus Christ, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Did you hear that? Who He is, what He deserves, what He has full right to do, and yet what He chose to do instead. What He chooses to do instead. Many husbands that I know would hardly give up one of their french fries for their wife. And yet the one that husbands are supposed to be the image of to their wives and to their children and to the watching world around, he gave up every shed of self for his bride. He died daily for her until one day he finally died for her and laid waste to the final enemy, death. Who is like this king? Verse 6. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved the righteous and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. This psalmist seems almost to shift who he's speaking to here, if you're not paying attention. You see, we, we thought he was speaking of some human king, if we're not careful. But to whom is the psalmist talking? Is it to God? Whose throne is forever and ever? Or is it to some great man king? Well, the book of Hebrews helps us to understand the answer. You see, in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, the author actually quotes this verse, saying, Of the Son, he says, Your throne, 
O God, is forever and ever. Now, this brings up an important principle of interpreting Scripture. If you're ever confused about how to understand a particular passage of Scripture, if you're ever confused about where to go to understand what it's saying, one first step is that the rule of faith, we let the clear, plain, easily understood passages of Scripture interpret the more difficult and the less clear. So difficult is, is he talking to man or God? Clear, Hebrews says, he talks to the Son. Hebrews 1 is clear and precise. He says that this psalm is referring to the Son, Jesus Christ. Thus, we can know with absolute confidence the Bible's own interpretation of itself is that Psalm 45 does not speak of a Messiah. It speaks of the Messiah, Christ Jesus, who's come. With that said, to whom is the psalmist talking about? A man or to God? The answer is simply yes. He speaks here as written in the New Testament of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, the God-man King, creator and sustainer. He is indeed Emmanuel, God with us. This King is not one of the fleeting kings of the world who will rise and fall and drift off into obscurity. Rather, His throne lasts forever. His scepter, the sign of His rule, His right to rule, is upright. Meaning, all He does is therefore good, upright. All that He is is good, and therefore all He does is good. So how then, if this king, if this ruler, if he is who he is, how then is there still evil in the world? Is it not common in our life and culture to kind of look up to heaven and shake our fist when things go wrong at God? And yet, is it not God himself in Lamentations 3, one of the wisest chapters ever penned in all of Scripture? In Lamentations 3, where in verses 37 and 38, Jeremiah says, Who has spoken and it came to pass, unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? So then God sees no need for Himself to be defended against His sovereignty. But the psalmist here has no trouble in describing this issue between if there's such a good king, why is there still evil? He tells us exactly why. Why does he do upright? Why is he always good? Because you've loved righteousness and hated wickedness. How easily can we begin to make God the bad guy in our mind when we take man and his desires and his needs and put him at the center of the universe? We're forgetting that it is he who loves righteousness. And man who is wicked beyond measure. He has loved righteousness and hated wickedness. And because of this, God, your God, has anointed him with the oil of gladness beyond measure. This king does not walk about as a stone-faced conqueror, but as a king filled with joy. And filled with joy so much that he pours it out to the lives of his people. Christ himself says, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. 
And the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. He is a king of joy beyond compare. Who is like this king? Verse 8. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of a fear. This wedding poet stimulates our senses here. One theologian says, He is delightful to every sense. To the eyes most fair, to the ears most gracious, and to the spiritual nostril most sweet. The presence of the king fragrances everything within his reach. The beautiful music fills his palaces. Who are the blessed ones that get to stand in this presence of this sensational spectacle? The most beautiful and purest of royalty. Those who have more opportunity to be prideful over all can it a humble blessing and honor to stand in His mere presence. And His bride, whose appearance is as one who's wrapped in gold of Ophir. This would have been considered one of the rarest and most pure types of gold known to man. The idea is this bride has been made beautiful for her wedding. She glistens, glitters, and glows at her king's side. Just as we see in Revelation 19, 8, the bride is clothed with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And as Isaiah prophesied, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. So also the bride of Christ, the church, stands at His right hand, clothed in golden righteousness. The purifying of the bride in this wedding. It's done. There's a day when she's finally spotless. When no more will there be wrinkle. She's holy as He is holy. When strivings cease and she will be in the presence of His utter glory on the day of her wedding. How excitedly does a young bride await her wedding day. And yet there is a day that is sung about that is more alive and electrifying than any earthly wedding could compare. How intently ought our minds, our lives, our intentionality be set on planning and meditating for our great and glorious wedding day. Verse 10. Hear, O daughter, and consider and incline your ear Forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is Lord, bow to him. The psalmist now shifts his message from speaking to the bride, or pardon, he shifts his message to speaking to the bride as he sees her by the king's right hand. He gives a very clear call for her to pay attention. There's much she must hear. She must forget your people and your father's house. She's called to leave her father and mother and cling to her husband. Leave her father, the ruler of this world, the prince of powers, the rulers of this age, that who lives by the way of self and self-love. She is to leave her father's house and cling to her husband. 
the one and only Lord. And because he is hers, she must bow herself to him. This relationship is mutually exclusive. He is her husband and she has no other. This is a call for a one-man wife. The bride who is faithful to her love. James describes this perfectly in in chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. As he describes what it means to seek other lovers. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the Spirit that, has made, that he has made to dwell in us? The bride is to forget her past life and remember it no more. She is to remove herself from it. She no longer serves her old master. Now she bows her heart to a new one. She's free from the laws of her old household. We are called to make ready for the king, a bride wrapped in the king's righteousness that has set her heart on her only love, the Lord. Verse 12, the people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts. The richest of the people. The psalmist paints a picture of of the glory that is ascribed to this bride by her being just in the vicinity of the king. That she is envied and beloved by all who would look upon her in her wedding day. She has been made ready for him and now she shares in his glory and honor. Verse 13. All glorious is the princess in her chamber, with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes she is led to the king, with her virgin companions following behind her. With joy and gladness they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. I I think the the NASB translation gives a really helpful understanding here. To what the psalmist says, the king's daughter, all glorious is the princess in her chamber, Another way to translate it would be the king's daughter is all glorious within. The bride's beauty does not exist in an outwardly way that will fade and perish, just as her husband's beauty is not found in his. But rather, it's this inward person. You see, she's been washed. She's been sanctified. She's been given the righteousness of Christ, and now we see the result. Charles Spurgeon comments, her beauty is not outward only nor mainly. The choicest of her charms are to be found in her heart, her secret chamber, her inward desires. The church, the bride of the king, stands beautiful inwardly as she is prepared for her beautiful day. She's made ready her heart and she's put on the brightly colored radiance of her husband. She has put on Christ and made no provision for her flesh. And did you hear how she enters the room? With joy and gladness, they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. This is a victory march of the conquerors, of those who have been held onto in the safe and sovereign hand of God. Now it's interesting, the word of God is filled with descriptions of the beautiful gifts of God, 
okay? The things that we can be joyful about. In fact, it drips and gushes with the joys of heaven, the radiant beauty, the joyful pleasures, the forgiveness of sin, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more sickness, no more darkness, no more ending of relationships, no more betrayal of friendships. All of those are beautiful, true, right, and wonderful gifts to be excited about. But there is something we must notice in this specific text. That there's nothing explicitly mentioned about why they go in with joy and gladness except one detail. In this particular text, it is into the palace of the king that they go. You see, this is the joy of those whose portion is the Lord. They do not simply delight in the gifts that have given to them at the wedding, right? Not delighting in the gifts of, the, of the, the daughters of Tyre, though they're there. They go in with joy to a place of their treasure where their heart has been. The bride delights with the psalmist in the king himself, not because of what they get from him. This is, really, it's, this is one of the main pushes of the psalm. Which is why it uses such vivid description of who this is. It's because who he is that they are filled with joy. John Piper asks a pair of excellent questions in his book, God is the Gospel. And I, and I think they summarize well what we ought to see in the love of the psalmist for this king. The questions follow like this. I'll, I'll, it's, it's a wee bit lengthy, but it's worth it. If you could have heaven with no sickness... And with all your friends you've ever had on earth, and all the food you've ever liked, and all the leisure activities you've ever enjoyed, and all the natural beauties you've ever saw, all the physical pleasures you've ever tasted, and no human conflict, no natural disaster, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? Do you see the rub? The psalmist does not praise the king because of what he promises to give. Nor is the bride so wonderfully filled with joy because of the presence she receives. Those are simply lesser fruits of the delight that comes from having what she truly longs for. The groom. The piper continues on. Every person should be required to answer this question. Why is it good news to you? That your sins are forgiven. It is true that no one should want to go to hell. Forgiveness does indeed relieve a, a guilty conscience. In heaven we will be restored to loved ones who died in Christ. We will escape the pain of hell and enjoy the justice and the beauty of the new earth. All that is true. Yet those reasons do not express a supreme desire to be with God. God. God's not even mentioned. Only his gifts were mentioned. These gifts are precious, but they're not God. The bride goes in with the throng in thunderous joy because it is to her king to whom she goes. He himself is her greatest gift, her most satisfying delight. The reason she is filled with joy and that she is welcomed into this palace. 
because her groom is there. The psalmist turns again to direct his gaze back at the king to whom he speaks by saying, In the place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. Meaning the king is going to make his children to be princes. Daniel 7.27 describes this reality that the kingdoms of the earth will be given to the saints of the Most High. His plan for his bride is to make his children into royalty. To rule and reign by his side over all the earth to his glory and to their delight. He says, I will cause your name in response to this. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. So what is the result of this glorious wedding? When the the psalmist has seen what he's seen, as he's beholding the king in all his glory, as he declares the beauty of this bride going into her husband, he also then declares a promise out of the overflow of his heart. He will make God's name known. He's seen this king, and he purposes his life that he would make this God the revelation of who he is and all he has said known across the entire globe and to all generations. From an overflow of the heart the mouth speaks. He beholds and therefore he worships. What then? What then can stir in the hearts of the church while still in our engagement? What can stir in the hearts of the bride as she longs for the day she'll be wrapped in gold of a fear? Her garments interwoven with the scents that waft from her groom, with the joys of her fellows as they enter in, not because streets are gold, but because of Him who invented gold. Number one. I have six. We'll see what we get to. There's way too much groaning that I just heard. (laughs) Number one. We'll move quickly through. What ought we to do? Number one. Prepare yourself for the day of your wedding. Your groom is coming soon. Are you preparing for your wedding day? What do you fill your life with? The lives of your children. What do you focus your thoughts on? What do you wait on to find true happiness? What are you hoping will give you that lasting satisfaction? Let me ask, are you living this life planning for your wedding? We have warnings from the mouth of Christ himself. Warnings to stay awake because the groom is coming and those who are not ready for him are not his. Warnings to leave all other lovers and follow him for those who are not completely his are not his. There is much to fret about in this life, isn't there? There's much to be done. So how desperately do we need to be reminded of this glorious wedding? 
What joy is to come that will make this life's fleeting desires taste like you're biting a raw potato expecting an apple? Or drinking one of those weird LaCroix-flavored things where it sparkles for a second and then it's dull and bland and tasteless. Oh, the joy of heaven is more like Dr. Pepper compared to LaCroix. Take hope, you who love Christ. Your life of joy everlasting is not here. And it is beyond compare. Number two, test your joy. Truly, test your joy. To see why is it good news that you've been saved from your sin. I ask our youth this very question. What makes good news good? What do you see as the ultimate good in your salvation? And is it who it ought to be? Is your salvation just another way of really your loving yourself? Or is your salvation the joy of being able to love that one? I truly challenge you to ask these questions. There is nothing wrong with rejoicing over what God says are his good and beautiful gifts. Those are good and wonderful to take joy in. But take seriously a warning from Hosea 2.8. As God is describing His people and He's blessed them with sweet gifts and they ran to their other gods to give thanks for them. These good gifts are only good because they draw your heart to the gift giver. Delight in the fount of every blessing, not the drippings from the fount. Number three, search to know if you behold this God. Do you know him? Do do you see him? Perhaps this could help you to know. Ask yourself this question. Is the overflow of your heart, of your life, verse 17, I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. If you want to know who your God is, what is it that you worship and love? Just look to see what your life revolves around. What is it you find delight in? There's this principle that we must understand. A heart that overflows will always delight and make known the glory of the one it loves. A heart will only ever overflow the glory and delight of the one it truly loves. When you're shaken, what spills out? I invite you, uh, as does our wedding psalmist, to behold the majesty of this king and do what is only fit, right, appropriate, acceptable and bow before him in reverent worship and go proclaiming his glory to the nations. Whatever you eat, whether you eat or whether you drink, do it all unto the glory of God. Husbands, number four, you recognize that you will account for the kind of example you are of this king. You will be not compared to any other man. You will be not compared to any other husband. You will be not compared to your father. You will be not compared to your circumstances. 
Husbands, this is the image you bear to your families, to your brides, to the world. What kind of Christ do people see when they look at you? What kind of Christ do they see when they look at you and at how you love and lead and sanctify your wife? It's no small matter to bear a false image of who God is. He does not wink nor giggle at the sin of man, and neither should we. Our marriages are a road sign, pointing first our children and then the world to a glorious wedding day. What gospel are they seeing portrayed? We have a serious call in our lives, husbands, and our marriages. And I want to call very seriously those of you who claim Christ and yet walk in unrepentant rebellion in your marriages, in your parenting. I beg of you, repent. I pray that his arrows will pierce your heart and that you may bow to your Lord rather than as an enemy fall before him. Take seriously what God takes seriously. And run to grace what he calls you to run to grace with. We will, as men, inevitably fall to rightly proclaim his image. 1 John 1 makes this clear. The difference in scripture, though, is that one who doesn't love Christ comfortably lives in, loves, or completely ignores their sin. One who is in Christ, though they fail, and often still, they hate their sin. They love their God, and they run in confession to Him and to others. With their failure, and with joy, they let Him wash them and make them new. Oh, husbands, hear. Number five, be assured that there is none like this God. You who are not in Christ, you who are living in unrepentant sin, you who are living for your life and your glory, my dear friend, let me simply say, there is none like our God. You may be pretty, but you're not Him. You withhold yourself from the only one being who is forever fully worthy of being known. The joys and pleasures you are seeking in lesser things are simply empty shadows, meaning to point you to His glorious reality. He is the greatest and most beautiful cosmic joy possible to man. He is the delight for which all mankind was formed for, designed to delight in. Augustine spoke rightly when he said, Thou moves us to delight in praising Thee, for Thou have formed us for Thyself, and our hearts are restless till they find rest in Thee. Oh, you have eternal peace offered to you from this God. From this God. My friends, refusing His grace is like wanting to continue to sit in a poopy diaper because it's warm and it's mine. I beg of you, it will soon rot and stink. And if not cared for rightly, it will soon bring about your death. Who is like our God? Wouldn't you exchange mud pies for glory? Number six, meditate deeply on the love and glory of this God. He who is anointed with joy unmatched 
Okay? He whose beauty is uncontested, he who is overflowing with grace from his lips, he whose word goes out as a sword and whose arrows tear through the heart of stone, he who is only ever completely and fully good, he whose very presence wafts with rich perfumes and spices, this king, this glorious, majestic, and worthy one, he is the husband who's laid down his life. It is he who came in the form of men and humbled himself to the point of slavery and death upon a cross. He who withheld his hand from making use of his majesty and instead made a wicked bride into a radiant beauty, it is he who has had mercy on you who are in Christ. He came. It is this glorious one who's worthy of all honor that bore on his own self the entirety of man's wickedness and sin. Not simply to keep sinners out of hell, but to bring sinners to have him. To delight in the Father, to be filled with and sanctified by the Spirit, and to be presented to the Son as a bride, holy blameless and adored. O gift of gifts, O grace of faith, my God, how can it be that thou who hast discerning love shouldst give that gift to me? How many hearts thou mightest have had more innocent than mine? How many souls more worthy far of that pure touch of thine. Ah, grace. Into unlikeliest hearts it is thy boast to come. The glory of thy light to find in darkest spots a home. Pray with me. Father God, would you open our eyes to behold the wondrous beauty this wedding ceremony, this delightful event that will come and no time will ever pass again. Lord, would you take our hearts and bind them to you? Lord, would we rejoice in your gifts because they rejoice our hearts in you? Would, you, would we rejoice in your goodness, in your sovereignty, in your grace, in your salvation, in your blessing, in your mercy, not because they make us valuable, but Lord, because they show your immeasurable glory. He who would wrath harlot bride in gold of Ophir. He who would sanctify her to the innermost chambers that he might welcome her in with joy to his presence. Lord God, would you cast in our hearts the longing to behold you the way that woman that we might love you 
the way she does. And that we might therefore go out and bring your name to all the nations for every generation. We pray these things in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen.